the National Archives podcast series, Three Generations of Master Mariners, presented by Leonard Holder. This talk was recorded on the 6th of June 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to talk about three generations of master mariners. The lives and careers of three master mariners, Captain Colthorpe from Ipswich, born in 1829, Captain Leonard Arthur Hatcher of London, born in 1914, and me of Harwich, Essex, but I was born in Deptford in 1936. The main sources of information include family stories and experiences, graveyards in Surabaya in Java, the National Archives here in Kew, and record offices for ships, offices for ship registers, and the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich, and strangely, the UK archives held in St. John's, Newfoundland. The family stories from my mother sitting round the dining table at home told me that my ancestors included a famous orator, an illegitimate offspring of the Earl of Ellesmere, and the master owner of a four-masted bark sailing out of Ipswich going all over the world. The famous orator was in fact William Hatcher who joined the Rural League which was run by um, Jesse Collings, but that's another story. The Earl of Ellesmere, um, I put into uh, Google Earl of Ellesmere and Ill illegitimate offspring and I got three pages of results. <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't discovered which one is my ancestor, so I'm not going to talk about him either, but the one I am going to talk about who died in 1883, of whom, sadly, I don't have a photograph, is Captain James Colthorpe. I went off to sea in 1953. My first voyage was to Australia, second voyage to Japan, and the third voyage on the SS Troilus was to, uh, from Amsterdam to Port Said, Suez Canal, Aden, Penang, Port Swetnam, Singapore, and then to the Spice Islands, Jakarta, Cheribon, Tigal, Semarang, and Surabaya. My mother told me that my uh, great-great-grandfather had died in Surabaya. And she said, see if you can find his grave. So I hired at, at one of these trishaws and somebody to peddle it for me and uh, went round all the graveyards uh, looking for Captain James Colthorpe. I didn't find him. When I arrived home, I reported my failure to my mother. Um, she said, ah, did I say Surabaya? It might have been Batavia. And I said, thank you, mum. <laughs> and that experience put me off family history research. I didn't do any more family history research for the next 54 years. But uh, at the age of 72, I started to look back over my career and wonder why, I, why did I go to sea? Perhaps the answer lay with my nautical forebears. So with my wife Anne, who's in the second row here, I started research on our family histories. We started the way pe most people start with ancestry and with find my past. 
And from this we were able to establish family connections and where they lived. We could also send off a birth, marriage and death certificates. Uh, John Colthorpe, James's father, was a shipwright. And uh, we found him here uh, in the 1841 census. James was aged 13 and his father was 35. It's quite interesting, in fact, that uh, the Colthorpe family should have been shipwrights because uh, later on this month we're going down to Harwich to cut the keel for a replica Mayflower with the shipwrights. The relationship between myself and James Colthorpe, it's my mother's father's mother's father. Using the UK register of births, marriages and deaths, we obtained his death certificate. This was very important. It gave us the date of his death and it also gave us the official number of his ship, the ship he was sailing in when he died. With the official number of the ship, we could now look for the crew agreement. And naturally, I would look in Cardiff, which, which is where I thought the British records were. But they're in the maritime history in the Memorial University of Canada in St. John's, Newfoundland. I wouldn't have known that if one of my seafaring colleagues hadn't come back to the UK from a conference in St. John's and said, I've just been looking at the crew agreements you signed when you were 18 years old. And I said, but you've been in Newfoundland. He said, that's where they are. But they're not all there, as I shall reveal later on. So anybody looking for, for most of the crew agreements will find them at that website in Newfoundland. They were very helpful, except they had asbestos in the roof. And so I had to wait some months while they replaced the roof before I could get my results. But they came eventually. We found the crew agreement for his ship. It was called the Barryman of Glasgow. It was 452 gross tons, which is tiny. It's not a four-masted bark at all. And it was owned by Tom and Cameron, not by my great-great-grandfather. So I learned one thing about family stories. There's a little bit of truth in them, but they certainly aren't all true. Um, Captain Colthorpe signed on on the 21st of June 1882, and he died on the 5th of February 1883. And I'm jolly glad I didn't go around all the uh, graveyards in Batavia or Jakarta as it is now, um, because if I had, I wouldn't have found anything, because he actually did die in Surabaya. The reason that a 452 uh, gross ton ship could compete with the steamships that were uh, coming into profu profusion at that time was that the, um, the steamships were very inefficient and had to carry half of their uh, cargo space was filled up with coal for firing the boilers. Sailing ships didn't have that problem, so that's why they were able to compete. It's interesting that the crew agreement says, and it's worth me reading this, Glasgow to Java and if required to any port or ports in the Indian or China Seas, North or South Pacific, Mauritius, Australia, Australian colonies, South America, West Indies, United States or British North America, the continent of Europe until the ship returns to a final port of discharge in the United Kingdom, 
with liberty to call at any port or ports for orders, and the probable period of engagement is two years. When I signed on in 1953, I signed on for an almost identical two-year period uh, going all over the world. If you got back before that, you were regarded as being lucky. Captain Colthorpe's voyage was in a memorable year for the world. On the 2nd of October, his ship arrived in Cape Town. The 10th of November, it arrived in Batavia. 16th of December, it departed Batavia. And 24th of December, it arrived in Surabaya. In, on the 27th of August, 1883, in the following year, Krakatau erupted. And uh, he had been very close to Krakatau, sailing through uh, to go to Batavia. The eruption of Krakatau on the 27th of August was one of the largest explosive volcanic events in recent history. It blew half the island away. There's Batavia. Batavia was a, a very low-lying, dirty, foul, smelly, disease-ridden port. And that's where great-great-grandfather caught yellow fever. But his ship had already arrived in Surabaya before he died. My first trip as uncertificated fourth mate, no, fifth mate, the company said, we're going to make you fifth mate. And I said, I thought the ship has only four mates. And they said, it does. And they'll probably call you fourth mate. So I said, well, why am I officially fifth mate? They said, because we're going to pay you less money. <laughs> I got 32 pounds a month instead of 35. But the Phineas went along the north coast of Java, and we went through uh, the Sunda Strait in the other direction. And as we were going through, the master of the ship said to me, we're a bit early to arrive in Padang, which is on the west coast of Sumatra tomorrow morning, have you ever had a good look at Krakatau? And I said, no, sir, I haven't. He said, nor have I. Let's go and have a look. And here's this island with half of it blasted away. And we went and sailed round the bay, right close to the edge where it had exploded, and then came back on the course line. And uh, Captain McWillan said to me, um, you better rub out those positions on the chart and put them on the line that we should have been on because the charts go back to the office in Liverpool and they'll wonder what we were doing. He said, just make a note in the logbook, strong adverse currents. <laughs> <laughs> but we got to Padang at the correct time next morning. What is quite interesting is if you look at Krakatau now, exactly where we sailed in the Phemius, there is Anak Krakatau, which is son of Krakatau, which has come up into the lagoon where the old uh, volcano exploded. My next source of uh, interest, trying to find this mysterious four-masted bark, was Ipswich Record Office. Um, they had got Ipswich crew lists and were very helpful to me. Um, but he turns up as master of the fern, which was even smaller than the Barryman. It was 177 tons, and it was owned by somebody else, not by great-great-grandfather. But that 177-ton ship was in the ocean trade, which I think is quite remarkable. 
More recently, from Ancestry.co.uk, we've obtained copies of James's mate's certificate of service. The certificate of service is quite interesting because it's not a certificate of competency. The government brought in the Merchant Shipping Act in the 1850s and decided that everybody should be properly certified. But rather than having to make everybody pass exams in one year, what they did was that if you had been for a certain length of time doing the job already, they acknowledged that by a certificate of service. So his mate's certificate isn't a certificate of competency, it's a certificate of service because he had been 10 years in the British Merchant Service in the coasting and foreign trade. So it's a critical time for the certification of seafarers if you're looking to, uh, if you're seeking ancestors in that area. His master's certificate is a certificate of competency because that was in the 1860s. He actually had to pass an examination to become certified as a master mariner. That's what mariners refer to as a ticket. So he was a master mariner and he got a master mariner's ticket. That's the story so far with James uh, Colthorpe. He was a shipmaster, not a ship owner. After he died, his wife Abigail, who was aged 61, went to live with her daughter Annie Jennings in Worsted Road, St Mary Stoke, Ipswich. Their son, James Reeve Colthorpe, was born in 18, had been born in 1855. He was also a mariner, and he was issued with a certificate as only mate. And that's another interesting thing. What's the difference between a first mate and an only mate? The only mate was paid more money. It's a bit like me being a fourth or fifth mate, except my uh, ancestor got it, got it right. That's the story so far. Our next master mariner is James Colthorpe's great-grandson, Leonard Arthur Hatcher. There's James Colthorpe, there's Leonard Arthur Hatcher. He's my uh, mother's father. Leonard Arthur Hatcher is my mother's brother. Um, you can work out the relationship between him and James Colthorpe. Leonard Arthur Hatcher was born on the 15th of January 1914 at 25 Wellington Street, Deptford. His father was a post office worker and soon went off to war in France in the Post Office Rifles Regiment. After 2011, there's no census information available and the National Archives have some mariner's pouches of official documents from the Board of Trade Records but the pouch for Leonard Hatcher is missing. They tried very hard to find it, but couldn't. So how are we going to find out about his history? Another possible source of data is the Honourable Company of Master Mariners. Uh, their headquarters ship is at uh, Temple on the, the Thames, and they have some details about his history. But much more valuable than that is that while Leonard Hatcher was still alive, my wife, Anne, persuaded him to write down his life story when he was retired and living in Poole in Dorset. And having that personal account was much nicer and brought us much closer to him than we had been to James Colthorpe. 
Arthur Hatcher, his father in post office rifles uniform, Clara Hatcher, uh, his mother with my mother, Mabel. Um, my mother, Mabel, said, we said, were you happy when you had a young brother? And she said, not really, because he was everybody's favorite and I wanted to kill him. <laughs> but, but fortunately, she didn't. She was later very proud of him. Their father sent postcards from France and we're very fortunate that passed down through the family. We have postcards sent by my grandfather uh, from France. That just shows uh, the, the devastation. As he said, this gives a little idea of the German culture. They absolutely smash the houses to pieces. And we've got postcards from all his time in France so we can track his way through the um, First World War. But the really interesting uh, postcard came later on. That's the post office rifles. This is a postcard that came in 1919. It's from some, somebody called Fifine. And it, it says, Si vous voulez écrire à moi, sur l'écrit adresse Julia Bellbug. Um, it says Bon Souvenir, which is uh, Happy Memories. And we wonder what Grandfather was doing with Julia during First World War. But we didn't find the postcard, sadly, un until he died, so we can't ask him. So his secret is safe. Because many of his workmates were dead, uh, the post office was a depressing place to work. So Arthur Hatcher decided to join the Metropolitan Police. The family moved to Warwick Street, Deptford, and Mabel and Leonard attended the London County Council Clifton Hill School. Mabel found the schoolwork relatively easy. Leonard wasn't interested. Quoting his memoirs, it was while attending this school in 1925 that the headmaster inquired whether any boys were interested in going to sea. My hand was in the air before he had completed his sentence. I was then told that there was another LCC school at Rotherhithe, New Road, that prepared boys for a career at sea. I apply myself with additional effort and in preparation for the exam. Having succeeded in being selected, I was transferred to the Rotherhithe, New Road Nautical School a few weeks after my 12th birthday. That's London Nautical School, which is still going today. I spent two and a half years in the London Nautical School and enjoyed every moment of it. It was about the middle of 1928 when Mr Stead asked who would like to go to sea. Once again, my hand went up like a rocket. He explained that an English company was operating on the Indian coast. They were looking for cadets and, I, and told me to tell my parents, which I did. My father took me for an interview with the London agents who explained that I would be away from home and have to serve all my four years apprenticeship in eastern waters. I was discussing this with the uh, first sea lord, Admiral Sir Mark Stanhope, and discovered that he was in a board school in South London, hated the work. Somebody said, London Nautical School takes boys who want to go to sea, anybody interested? And he followed exactly the same path as, as my uh, mother's brother. 
Um, so London Nautical School is still doing a good job. Leonard Hatcher's first ship was the Ramani, belonged to Turner Morrison's, which was the Mogul line based in Bombay. The apprentices were Warwick and uh, Robinson, Blackman, Davies, Hatcher, Holmes, Elliot and Packer. Um, Bill Warwick became the first uh, master of the new QE2 when she was uh, built. My uncle says life was not all beer and skittles as an apprentice. That's him in his working gear. That's him painting the draft marks on the stem of his ship in one of the Indian ports. The company were responsible for health, but the apprentices had to meet their own expenditure for dental treatment, replacement of uniforms, shoes, etc. And it, they got a total of 36 pounds for four years, but they were being taught a profession which would stand them in good stead. From 1933 to 1936, he was third officer of various ships. And when he passed for first mate of a foreign going ship, he was appointed second officer of the Jahangir. That's the Taj Mahal Hotel in Bombay. If you remember, it was in the news not all that long ago because it was uh, raided by terrorists. Um, but my uncle uh, had been on a night out with the boys in Bombay and went into the uh, Taj Mahal Hotel where there was a, a posh dance going on. They'd had a little bit too much to drink and he saw this very attractive in Indian girl and asked her to dance. And uh, the story goes on from there. His ship was on uh, India to Red Sea service, carrying uh, pilgrims going to Mecca, the, the uh, Islamic pilgrims. On a three or four day visit to Bombay, he obtained a special license and Leonard Hatcher and Winifred Brown were married on the 2nd of November 1936 in St. Thomas's Cathedral, Bombay. That's them shortly after their wedding. They returned to the UK on leave in 1939. He was chief officer. He was appointed to the SS Islami, which was the company's newest ship. But they hadn't been back in India very long when World War II broke out. His ship was primarily engaged carrying Indian regi regiments to Suez and the Persian Gulf. Winifred, didn't like him being away at sea, had a nervous breakdown, and he resigned, and they both returned to England, where she recovered. World War II was on. Leonard returned to sea with Furness Withy on the cargo ship Dromore, and on this ship he made one or two trips across the Atlantic during the, uh, the Battle of the Atlantic, and also down to Portugal, Later on in the war, he was appointed as chief officer of the Queen of Bermuda. She'd been converted from a passenger ship to a troop ship, and they sailed to the Mediterranean with troops for the invasion of Italy. The National Archives here hold the medal listing for Leonard Arthur Hatcher, um, and it's, it's quite an interesting one. 
because he was awarded the 1939-45 star. But when you look at the uh, paperwork that goes with it, it says Army to Issue, 18152. Why was the Army issuing a medal to a Merchant Navy uh, mariner? The reason for that will become evident later on. Both of them were missing India, so he volunteered for the Royal Indian Navy, and Winifred joined the Indian Red Cross in London. Lady Mountbatten appointed one representative of each Commonwealth country to her committee running the Red Cross during the war, and she was the representative of India. And that's Winifred with the Indian Red Cross in about 1945. Leonard, meanwhile, had joined the Royal Indian Naval Reserve and was uh, sailing as a lieutenant in the Royal Indian Navy. After the war, the Navy sent out a signal for volunteers to open up the Malayan ports as they were all the pre-war harbour masters had been taken prisoners of war and they wanted these chaps to have six months recuperation leave. Leonard Hatcher was accepted for this task and sent to Singapore immediately the Japanese surrendered. From Singapore he was posted to Penang as deputy harbour master and on arrival there found that I, he was the one and only European officer on the, the station. That's Captain Hatcher as harbour master in Malaya. That's my auntie Winifred. And that's the Actina, which is the boy tender which used to lay boys and navigation marks around the Malaysian coast. Actina was built after the war but before the war, they'd had an old boy tender which had rod and chain steering and it, it had a huge um, brass-bound mahogany steering wheel. And when it was broken up, because they were having the new ship built, my uncle took it and when I called in in Penang, he said, I want this as the centrepiece for my garden gate when I retire to England. Would you take it home for me? So he wrapped it in brown paper and gave it to me and I took it home to Liverpool and I was going in a taxi out through the gates when the policeman looked in the taxi and saw this large flat brown paper parcel with spokes sticking out of it. And he said, eh, I think you better take that back, son. They'll be wanting it next voyage. <laughs> I explained, though, and it did make the centrepiece of the garden gate. On retirement from Malaya, he came back to the United Kingdom and he became... Dock, Tri-Dock Superintendent at the Royal Albert Dock for R.H. Green and Siley Weir. And Artie Winifred, always the entrepreneur, opened a small uh, shop, in uh, antique shop in Camden Passage. Leonard Hatcher had joined the Honourable Company of Master Mariners and that, as I say, was another source of information. Incidentally, why did the Army issue that medal? It was because the... Malayan ports were still under military administration and a merchant navy person couldn't be harbour master but an army person could so they appointed him as a captain in the 9th Gurkha Rifles and he's one of the few people to earn medals in the Atlantic who had their medal awarded by the 9th Gurkha Rifles. Now going on to the third generation of master mariners 
in my family. It's a bit self-indulgent, but it's myself. The reason I've done myself is that when I came here and asked to see other people's records, they said, you can't see them. It's all due to uh, the Data Protection Act. You can't see anybody else's records unless you are a very close relative and can prove that you are the only person that can see them. And I said, well, can I have a look at my own records? And they said, yes, of course, as you're the person, you can see your own records. So these were the only, only ones I was able to get hold of. I was born in, uh, on the 13th of February at my grandparents' house in Deptford. I was brought up in rural Sussex with no electricity or gas, only oil lamps and candles, and a coal-fired kitchen range for cooking. In the kitchen, we had a, a wooden kitchen table, in the centre of which was an Aladdin lamp, um, an oil lamp. If you tried to get a bit more light by turning it up a bit, it got um, uh, residue all round the mantle and you had to burn it off before you could see anything. But my sister did sewing, my mother did sewing, and I did uh, my homework with the Aladdin lamp. And when you went to bed, you took a candle. Why did I go to sea? Well, I was three when World War II started. Um, living in rural Sussex, but then the family moved to Harwich in Essex and four, myself and three of my friends borrowed a 12-foot sailing dinghy and became explorers. It was wonderful. It's Swallows and Amazons stuff. We set off to discover the rivers and creeks of Essex and Suffolk. No charts, no pilot books, no safety equipment. If I was going to have a career at sea, should it be the Royal Navy or the Merchant Navy? But I had a very short career in the Royal Navy. The reason I chose the Royal Navy, I think, is that my mother had been at uh, Dartmouth Royal Naval College as a children's nurse um, in the 1920s, and she was very impressed by these smart young men and influenced me in my choice, I think. Anyway, I did reasonably well in the written exam. There were 625 applicants and I came 14th. And then I had to go for an interview. And the Admiral in charge of the interview board said, sometime during the interview, we're going to ask you to make a five-minute talk on a subject which we will not just pick out of the air. It's something that will come up naturally in conversation. So. We were talking about why I wanted to go to sea, and I said, well, I want to visit places all over the world. And they said, anywhere in particular. And I said, yes, Australia. And they said, tell us about Australia. And I didn't know an awful lot about Australia, but I made the fatal mistake of mentioning the duck-billed platypus. And the Admiral said, ah, remember, you're going to have to give a five-minute talk on something. Your subject is the duck-billed platypus. Have you ever tried giving a talk on the duck-billed platypus? I managed about 20 seconds. And I, I thought, what a stupid way of selecting people for the Royal Navy. But we've been to lots of cocktail parties on Royal Naval ships since. They do courtesy visits all over the world. The local dignitaries come on board. 
And the naval officers have to talk to people they don't know for five minutes about subjects they know nothing about. Five minutes is the limit. If you can make five minutes in a cocktail party, you're all right, and you can pass on to the next person to bore them stiff. But I failed cocktail parties. I was all right on seamanship and navigation, but I didn't do terribly well on cocktail parties. So after the interview, I was 33rd, and they only took 30. I now regard that as a narrow escape, because I don't think I'd have enjoyed the RN. I went to King Edward VII Nautical College in Commercial Road in London, which was founded in 1902, and I did a three-months pre-sea course. There was no room in college. We were taught in Stepney Men's Institute, was, which was uh, quite exciting. I was introduced to the Blue Funnel Line by their, a friend of my grandfather's who was the choice pilot for Blue Funnel Line ships coming into London. And they thought that I was not tough enough, uh, the Blue Funnel Line thought I wasn't tough enough, so they sent me for a toughening up course to Abu Dhabi at the Outward Bound Sea School in 1953. I'll tell you one story about Abu Dhabi. That's me. And that's an aspiring Royal Marines bandsman called Wells. Now, this was an experiment. They'd never sent grammar and public school boys and Borstal boys to the same place, but they hoped that they would learn something from one another. And I did my 32-mile hike over Cadaridris on the night that the East Coast floods happened in January 1953. And I learned quite a lot from aspiring bandsman, Wells. Um, Wells said to me that he'd spent most of his time in institutions and had finished up graduating to Borstal at the end of his uh, childhood. And uh, he said, I'd like to meet my father. And I said, have you met your father? He said, no, I'd love to meet him. And I said, well, I expect you would. He said, yeah, I'd kill him because he's He's really run my mother's life a right dance, and I'd, I'd like to kill him. And he said, and my brother's a right waster. He said, I, I, I cannot understand my brother. He'll go out of a night, he'll nick three or four wallets, he'll get 30 or 40 quid, and he either goes down in a boozer and drinks it all, or he goes to the dogs and loses it there. He said, can you understand people that do that? I said, no, I can't. He said, now, I'm not like that at all. I go out of a night, I nick three or four wallets, get 30 or 40 quid, I put it in the building society. <laughs> I signed an indenture with Alfred Holtz. Um, we earned a little bit more money than my uncle had done. I had 90 pounds in my first year, and I should have had 144 pounds in my last year, but by that time, they'd made me uncertificated fifth mate. 90 pounds for the first year, 114 for the second, um, but it was all found. Um, as the Liverpool seafarers used to say, the more you eat, the more you earn. The doc documents related to my sea service are all in my pouch here at the National Archives. The details of my joining in uh, 1953, my discharge book, my application for examination for a certificate of efficiency as a lifeboatman, qualifying examiners, uh, examination for efficient deckhand, 
qualifications for certificate of competency as an able-bodied seaman, application for renewal of my British seaman's card at Parks and Quay in Harwich, where I saved for a little while, and the form CRS 56, which was my leaving to take up shore appointments, and CRS 10, the certificates with all the ships and dates, including Helenus, Atreus, Troilus, Autolycus, Glenurn, Calcus, Calcus, Calcus. The Calcus was the cadet ship, and Blue Funnel Line, other, unlike other shipping companies, didn't run it as a school. They simply took each able-bodied uh, seaman and efficient deckhand off and put one midshipman in in their place. So we carried out the work of seamen. When I was on the Femius, Captain Macmillan said, show me your hands. So I said, there they are. He said, they're soft. You couldn't go back to the Calcus now, which was probably quite true. My first voyage to sea after my fiasco with the Duckville Platypus was to Australia, and that's Helenus going under Sydney Harbour Bridge. And if you look closely, that's me at the stern with the second mate. And as soon as we tied up at number one Walsh Bay, I got on the ferry across the harbour to Taronga Park Zoo and visited the enclosure where they had, supposedly, the duck-billed platypuses. I stood outside the enclosure looking in for three hours and didn't see anything. And I thought, the early settlers were right. The early settlers thought somebody was having a joke when they produced a duck-billed platypus. They thought that somebody had sewn a duck's bill onto a mole and pretended that it was a, a new species. But since then, we've been back and we've actually been to Taronga Zoo again and we've actually seen the duckbill platypuses swimming around. I thought they'd be the size of cats or ducks. They're not. They're tiny. And, uh, but they, they do everything that they're supposed to do, including laying eggs. Alfred Holt's Blue Funnel Line mainly served the Far East and Australia and one of the centres of operation was Singapore River. Hong Kong, where we loaded a lot of the cargo from sailing uh, junks, where the families were born, lived and died on the sailing junks. The, uh, all the catering and the living accommodation and the clothes and everything of the Chinese people on these junks were absolutely spotless and well organised. I suppose if you live on a junk, you've got to be quite well organised because there's no room uh, for any rubbish. But we have been impressed going back to Hong Kong to see that the people who live on junks now, when their children go off to the schools, they're always very smartly dressed. Um, I think we could take some lessons from them in this country. They're all smartly dressed in uniform with starch white shirts, etc. Our children, I think, look very scruffy these days. But uh, yes, that's just, <laughs> that's just me. Sources of information about my voyages are available here at the National Archives in Kew and the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. If the year in which the voyage ended ends with a five, it hasn't been sent to Newfoundland, it's been sent to Greenwich instead. So I've been able to, to look there for some of the information. As I said before, a lot of the information is in the M Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland. Um, the things I was able to look up in Greenwich for the Calcus, we have a reunion once a year which I'm organising, 
and about 50 or 60 of us who sailed in 1955 get together and I've got a lot of them interested in doing family history research and finding out about uh, their family and, and friends. And they've got crew agreements, official log books. That's the crew agreement uh, I signed on the, the Calcus. That's the chi we had Chinese engine room crew on the uh, cadet ship. And uh, you'll notice down the left-hand side are the thumbprints, because they didn't sign their name in English. They put their thumbprints on. There's some wonderful detail about the scale of provisions for the Chinese crew. And it starts off one catty of rice. What's a catty? Anybody know? A catty is 0.6047898 kilograms. It's a traditional Chinese unit of weight. A little bit later on, there was a romantic headline in the local paper in Harwich saying, third mate marries PE teacher. When I was second mate, I completed my sea time for my master's certificate. Um, that's me in uh, Trincomalee in uh, Ceylon, as it was then, Sri Lanka now. And that the um, Sri Lankan foreman brought me along that very nice, nearly ripe pineapple. And I thought I'd take it home for the family. But by the time we got to the Bay of Biscay, it was getting overripe, so I ate it all myself. But I did tell the family about it when I got home. A second mate, your wife could join you on coasting voyages around Europe, but by this time we had two children. Fortunately, we had two grandparents as well, so they looked after the children while Anne came with me on the Demodocus, where I was second mate. My certificates of competency are second mate foreign going in 1957, first mate foreign going in 59, master foreign going, that's the master certificate, the same as my great great grandfather and uncle had had. Um, but the question then was, should I go on to study for extra master, which is the um, highest qualification? My officer ranks, uncertificated fourth mate or fifth mate, uh, extra third mate, third mate, second mate. And the question I had to ask then was, should I stay at sea and take command? At that time, the merchant, merchant shipping was a little bit depressed and I would have had to serve something like 20 or 30 years at sea before I got command. Now, if I had stayed on and got command, I could legitimately call myself captain. I am a master mariner. I am not really a captain. The, ca the title captain comes as a courtesy title because I'm a master mariner and a member of the Honourable Company of Master Mariners. But I had it on the start of my talk and I took it off because I think, uh, I don't think it's right that people who have not been in command of a ship call themselves captain. Whilst studying for extra master, I had an invitation to teach at Liverpool Polytechnic. Um, I uh, got the extra master's certificate uh, in 1966. Um, it's a funny name, extra master, and I people say to me, what, what does it mean? Um, one of the chaps I know who'd got a, an extra master's certificate in Australia was asked by a young lady, is an extra master a sort of spare one in case the first one goes crook? Um, but it's not. Up until master, 
you learn how to do the job safely. For extra master, you learn what you're doing, you go back to basic theory, and the extra masters are the ones that set the examinations and do most of the teaching. With the extra master's certificate, I wanted to go on and do a research degree, and I did mathematical modeling uh, of the accuracy of navigation of merchant ships at that time, and predicted how accurate they would accurately they would navigate uh, when they had the new satellite systems which were just coming into um, play then. I was very fortunate in that computers were coming in and my predecessor as head of department in Liverpool um, sent us all on computer courses before we knew what computers were. And I used an Elliott 803 computer with punch paper tape to run simulated voyages to get all my results. I was awarded the Master of Philosophy degree and the Fellowship of the Royal Institute of Navigation. Um, today I'm wearing the Arctic Turn tie, which is the top one, which is the old Institute of Navigation tie. The one at the bottom is their new tie, and that indicates to the, the Arctic Turn knew exactly where it was going. It used to go from the Arctic to the Antarctic and spend the summer in each half. The ones at the bottom, I think that symbol says, <laughs> we're not sure which we're going, way we're going, we're just going round in circles. So I refuse to wear the new tie. Another source of information about your relatives is the professional bodies and lear learned societies. Um, there's the Journal of Navigation and Navigation News. The professional body for the nautical profession is the Nautical Institute, of which I was president from 1993 to 96, and I was a, a founder member of it um, in 1969. Professional books and journals, that's the history of the Nautical Institute, and there's a lot of details about what everybody did in the profession. In, in 1969, there were a lot of changes going on in the, in the uh, nautical profession. Up until that time, the shipping companies planned your career for you. After that time, you had to plan it for yourself because nobody was looking long term. So we all got together and decided if we're going to keep up professional standards, we've got to help one another. And that's exactly what we do today through the Nautical Institute. Seaways is the, the journal, and that is read by uh, the nautical profession all over the world and keeps them up to date. The Honourable Company of Master Mariners, I became a cadet in 1953, an apprentice in 1955, a member in 1963, a liveryman and got the freedom of City of London by servitude in 1968. I was Master of the Honourable Company from 2000 to 2001 and now I am a past master. That's me wearing the master's badge. There are other professional books and journals. Uh, that's a book about the Honourable Company of Master Mariners, and that's the Journal of the Honourable Company of Master Mariners, which is another interesting source. About 40 years ago, a mobile tanker ran aground in a port entrance. The master realised he'd be blamed for the accident because he hadn't supervised the pilot. He went to his cabin, took out a revolver, 
and shot himself. And sadly, um, the, the company uh, were very upset uh, by this action and asked that somebody should make a film of master-pilot relationships. And so three of us made the film and we sat in a little Greek restaurant in London afterwards and said, that was fun, let's make some more films. And that company is Videotel. And when I left Liverpool Polytechnic, they invited me to work with them. And in 1996, they made me company chairman. So that's what I do at the moment. We produce training materials for 10,000, more than 10,000 ships in 20 different languages and are now producing a lot of online programs as well. I haven't written my history. I've only recorded the light-hearted moments. The serious history may have to wait, but the light-hearted moments are in that book and that book. First one, 178 stories. Second one is 117 stories. Um, we sell them from home because most of the money then goes to charity. If you buy it through Amazon or bookshops, the charity gets 50 pence. If you buy it from us at home, the charity gets more than six pounds per copy. Um, we've given more than 2,000 pounds to Mersey Mission to Seafarers, and we've given over 1,000 pounds to the National Association for Colitis and Crohn's Disease. Thank you very much for listening. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.